welcome to the Parker J. Cole Show. I am your host, the Queen Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking to my returning guest co-host and contributor today, Joseph Bentz. He is the author of the book we're going to be highlighting today called Eight Old Testament Passages That Changed the World. And if you're a follower of the show, you may go, wait a minute, that sounds awfully familiar. And the reason why it sounds awfully familiar is because Joe is the author of the companion book, or maybe the first book in the series, 10 New Testament Passages That Changed the World. They're both available on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. One thing I love about this book is the fact that it shows us just how far-reaching the Word of God is, that this goes down through history. And so we're going to talk more about it in just a few moments. I want to thank our Patreon team for their support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past nine years, and as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash stuff and see what you can do. And as always, we covet your prayers. And so without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest co-host today, Joseph Bentz. Joe, how are you doing today? All right, Parker. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. I'm so glad that we are having this conversation because a lot of people focus on the New Testament, which is great. But there are so many nuggets of gold that is in the Old Testament. And I'm so glad the Lord led you to do this book. I remember when you were on the show before, you were talking about this book, and now it's here. So really excited to have you with us today. I want people to know who you are. So go ahead and tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a professor of English at Azusa Pacific University in Southern California, and I write books. I've written four novels, and after the novels, I started to write books on Christian living issues. These are books on questions that I had spiritually. So whenever I would really wonder about something, my way of processing it is to research and write about it. And that's how both the the New Testament book and the Old Testament book came up. And I want to make sure I gave the wrong title. I said 10 New Testament, it's actually 12. My apologies. I was going by memory and I still just looked it up. (laughs) Memory is fickle, that's for sure. But Basically, 12 New Testament passages has changed the world, and the other one, which is eight Old Testament passages that changed the world. Those are the two books that Joe has highlighted on this show, and I can't wait to have him back because we got to talk about his novels, so can't wait to have him back for that. Now, Joe, one of the things that you said is that when you have questions, you look for answers. Why is it significant for the Christian walk? Well, I think that a lot of people feel bad. They feel guilty if they have questions. You know, why do things happen? Why are things the way they are? And I think, you know, one of the one of the things that I learned from doing this study, because one of the one of the chapters is on Psalm 23 and on Psalms in general, is that God is not bothered. He's not worried if we ask even the toughest questions. He can handle that if you read the Psalms, you know, they cry out to him. They complain to him, they worship him, they, the entire range of human emotions you can find in the Psalms alone. So, and I think, you know, you're a writer. I think you know what it's like for us who are writers that other people might 
handle these things in conversation or through art or through other ways. But for writers, the way to really get at the truth is writing about it. We don't really know what we think until we start writing about it. And so for me, it's been a way of dealing with my own issues and then it can help other people, you know, as they read it. Sometimes when I was writing this book, I would even forget that I was writing a book and I get so caught up in what I was reading about and learning about that I would spend way too much time on it. And then suddenly I'd bring myself back and think, wait a minute, I'm writing a book. I've got, I've got a deadline. I've got a chapter to do. So I'd have to pull myself out of it. But I think for, for me as a writer, every book is first about my question. And then I try to tailor it so that readers can benefit from it as well. I want to talk about people who feel guilty for having questions really quickly. I think this is important because nowadays there is a push for you to simply accept things. And this is in the secular world as well as the spiritual world. However, there is never anything wrong with getting further clarity about difficult subjects. I think critical thinking skills are at an all-time low because we aren't asking questions. And this book sets up four questions. You had questions and you went for the answer. You studied them. And it helps you firm up your own belief about the world around you. Why do you think more Christians need to be cognizant of the importance of Bible study? Well, I think that sometimes as Christians, we feel that mainly we need to defend God all the time, that, you know, it's up to us to defend him and to defend what we believe as if it is somehow going to fall apart if we're not there to defend him. And so we defend even if we don't understand the issue at hand. And I think one of the things that can happen as our faith grows is that we can realize that God doesn't really need us to defend him. He can defend himself. The scripture can defend itself. He needs us to believe, to have faith in him, to trust him, and to ask the tough questions. And I think you're right about critical thinking. You know, this is what I do as a college professor. You know, I teach uh, in the Honors College at APU as part of my load, and we read the great works, the great Christian works, the great secular work, and we ask every tough question we can think of because that's the way to really strengthen your faith, not to avoid things, not to just give kind of a half-baked answer to, to something that comes up. You know, that's not going to work in the long run. In the long run, that undermines your faith. Ask the tough questions. God can handle it. Amen. I think I'm going to say that again. Ask the tough questions. God can handle it. And I think that's a perfect segue into this book, Eight Old Testament Passages That Changed the World. If you hear the word Goliath, what name do you immediately want to pair it with? If someone says Jonah, what animal pops into your head? If you hear the word commandments, what number comes to mind? Those and other Old Testament stories, poems, and prophecies continue to show up in places the original writers never could have imagined. Television commercials, social media memes, movies, novels, laws, and many other places. Eight Old Testament passages that changed the world looks at the many ways culture 
has treated, mistreated, and brought to life the most well-known portions of the Old Testament. And as I said before to our listeners, this book is a follow-up to the 2019 book, 12 New Testament Passages That Changed the World. Now, let's go into some questions about this book, Joe. Many books have been written about the Bible. So what sets eight Old Testament passages that changed the world apart? How is your approach different? The main difference in my approach is that I'm not simply doing a Bible study of these passages. What I'm doing, so let let me just explain what set off this whole need to even write these books. And this really goes back to the New Testament book as well. I was reading a lot in that period. This is four or five years ago. People were saying, you know, the Bible is not as relevant as it used to be. People don't read it anymore. It's not really quoted much. People don't understand it. They don't know the stories, all this sort of thing. And I could sort of see that. And yet there was a lot of evidence on the other side as well. And about that time, the apps, the Bible apps were really taking off. And, you know, hundreds of millions of those were being downloaded all over the world. And there were other ways in which I could see that in some ways the the influence of the Bible was waning, but in, in some ways it was increasing. And the Bible was more available to people around the world than ever before. I mean, if you have an internet connection and a cell phone, you can get the Bible no matter where you are in the world through these apps. So I wrote the New Testament book looking at not only the stories themselves, but the impact that they had had on culture, all those things that you just mentioned. Because even though we may think that the Bible, you know, people may even be hostile to the Bible. They may be atheists. They may think, I I don't read the Bible. I don't like the Bible. But they still, just like that list you gave, you know, if you say David, they know Goliath. If you say Noah, they say the, and the ark. So these stories and passages have had and continue to have a bigger, much bigger impact on every area of our culture than we realize. So I looked, and it was a joy to do it. I looked at movie versions of these passages. I looked at how they're presented in social media. I looked at commercials that use, let's say, Adam and Eve. You know, there are just, I could write a whole book just on Adam and Eve and how it is used and misused in advertising. I looked at song. So law, you know, think about the Ten Commandments and how it's affected the law around the world. Movies, novels, all these things. So one of the things that I'm doing is showing the impact that these stories have had. But often the passages, as people know them through pop culture, have been distorted. The Adam and Eve story, for example, I mean, I could go into that a little bit if you want, but they've been distorted. So I thought, let's look at the influence of these passages, and then let's look at them, the passages themselves again and see what's really there, not just what you kind of half remember from Sunday school that Noah and the ark is about. What does the scripture really say? What is, what is Adam and Eve? What is Moses? What is David and Goliath? All these sorts of things. So that's really what my book does. Go ahead and tell us about Adam and Eve and what the biblical view is versus how it's got distorted over the years. I think it's a good example. Each chapter that I wrote was was almost like writing a separate book because I would spend all this time, you know, just on that one. And I really loved doing the Adam and Eve one. And one of the things about Adam and Eve, and this is true of many of these 
passages is that people already know the story or think they know it. For example, one of the ways you you know this is that if I drew even, I'm a terrible artist, but if I drew just a stick figure of a man and a woman covered by a fig leaf or two holding an apple, you would know that's Adam and Eve. When I looked at some artwork, so these paintings, you know, some of the painters don't even bother to paint the whole story. They could just, I, there was one artist who just did an apple with a serpent behind it. So the elements of the Adam and Eve story, the man, the woman, the apple, the serpent, that they know, they know that part of the story. And by the way, it wasn't even an apple, you know, but that's how people know it. I mean, the Bible that never used the never word apple. says what the fruit was. And I'm glad he didn't because he probably would have made something big out of that anyway. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah. No, we don't know what it looked like. It may look may have looked nothing like an apple. May have been a banana, for all we know. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And so now the thing is that as Christians, we know that the Adam and Eve story, in a sense, is a terrible tragedy. This is when sin is brought into humanity. This is when Adam and Eve fell to this temptation and they sinned. And they had to be removed from the garden. And this has brought the sin problem into our lives. Advertisers, however, see all advertisers use this story. And I looked at lots and lots of commercials that use the Adam and Eve story. Advertisers don't have to tell the story because people already know it. They just have to draw on people's memory of it, draw on their knowledge of it. So advertisers, the way they have distorted the story is that for them, falling to the temptation is a good thing because whatever they're advertising, they want you to fall to that temptation to do it. So, for example, there was, I found a cigarette company, it's no longer in business, but it was called Eve Cigarette. And they advertised to, it was it was in the 70s and they were advertising for women, you know, so women were supposed to buy these cigarettes. They were marketed toward women. And so the packaging has a, a woman, you know, flowing hair and a nice, you know, jungle scene behind her. And their slogan was, there's a little Eve in every woman. The idea was to make Eve look daring and bold. And she gives into the temptation to smoke this cigarette. And that is a good thing in the advertiser's view. So you see the sin is actually seen at, you know, whereas for Christians, this story is about falling to sin, which is a bad thing. But for the advertisers, they want that to happen. There was another commercial. It was a commercial for Smirnoff. It was, uh, you know, for, for liquor. And it's about a 30-second commercial. But they have a couple. They're an attractive couple. And they're walking through. They're in a hotel. And they walk through a hallway, and every once in a while, you there's an angle of them. They're they have clothes on, but they're shown kind of behind a a plant, sort of looks like the fig leaf. They walk into the bar, so everybody's partying in the bar, and they sit at the bar. And there's a bartender, and serpents come out of his sleeve and crush the ice into their glasses, and then the liquor, the Smirnoff liquor, is poured. And then the serpents then squeeze an apple, get it an apple, into their glass and put apple slices in there. 
So the idea is, you know, fall to the temptation of that. So now some some of the some of the ads are are more uh, humorous. You know, there's one where this was for a Super Bowl contest and Eve has has eaten the forbidden fruit and she offers it to Adam, but it's a Doritos commercial. And so Adam says to Eve as he has offered the fruit, now I'm good. And he picks up a bag of Doritos and eats that instead. Nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> the thing is that the Adam and Eve story, you know, everything, all the principles of how temptation works, you know, rationalizing, blaming, all this sort of thing you can find in the Adam and Eve story in the Bible. And so I go into that more in the chapter as well. The The whole story, you know, if you look at it, Genesis 1 to 3, it's not very long. This is one of the things about these great passages of Scripture. They're very compressed. They're very short, and yet they include so much. And, you know, there's such a power to them that I think that even people who are distorting them can't get away from that. They want to draw into it. So that's a little bit about Adam and Eve. I like how you mentioned how things have been distorted by temptation. Temptation is now Eve. Yeah, you know, one thing that had not occurred to me until I wrote this chapter is that you know, you, you, you think the Garden of Eden, you know, paradise, and what must it have been like for them to live there? What would it, what was their day-to-day life like? But as I looked at the story, God creates Eve, just like you described, in Genesis 2.22. And then only four verses later, the serpent shows up and starts tempting her. So you don't get any, you know, I want to know, I'd like a, a couple chapters about Okay, what was life? What was Eden like? But you know, that's not the that's not how the Bible doesn't give us all that. It, it you know really it leaves us wanting more. And so only four you know four verses separate her creation from her temptation. That's why I love Christian authors who explore those gray areas or those silent areas through uh, antediluvian fiction, because. One of the best ever, and I've said this before, is Kingdom of Heaven series by K.G. Powderly. And he depicted Adam and Eve, but he depicted Eve being so sad and, and Adam being so sad. And they said, you will never have seen perfection in his story. And so these are things that give us the imagination. I think that's why the Lord allows us to play around these playgrounds a little bit as fiction writers. I know you wrote novels, too. So, yeah, but I'm glad you mentioned that. It lets us know just how impactful God's word is, even though it has been distorted, whereas temptation is something to avoid, like the old gospel hymn, yield not to temptation for yielding is sin. He doesn't say that you're not going to be tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. But he says, yield not to temptation for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some others to win. But now we say, no, yield to temptation, give in to what makes you feel good, what makes you feel a certain way. If it feels good, do it as if our feelings are the correct indicator of reality. And we really have fallen into, particularly here in the West, we've really fallen into this deceptive thing that feelings are more important than the objective reality. And so that's another subject for another time as well. Now, another thing in this is that we're talking about the Old Testament. And a lot of people, if they're going to read the Bible, they tend to focus on the New Testament. And so your first chapter is titled The Old Testament, Who Needs It? 
So did you find evidence that people today, even Christians, are paying less attention to the Old Testament than they used to? And what's your response to that? Yes. One of the writers that I quote in that first chapter is a scholar that I admire very much, uh, Brent A. Strawn, and he wrote a book that came out recently called The Old Testament is Dying. And that really caught my attention, as you can imagine, since I was starting to write this book and had already written the New Testament one. And he shows in that book that the Old Testament is, there, there are fewer sermons that are preached about it. There are fewer songs that come out from it. He, he has a whole way of analyzing just how downplayed the Old Testament has become over the last few decades, especially he focused more on the United States than other places. So, you know, so there, there is some evidence that Christians are not paying as much attention to the Old Testament as they used to. And I think that's another reason why I wanted to write this to show that, wow, this is not something to neglect because there's just amazing faith building material all through the Old Testament. And so I think we should start a trend in the other direction. One of the reasons why I enjoy reading the Old Testament is that regular people are highlighted in all of their flaws. I was reading David for my personal devotion. And when you read the story of David, it is amazing that God will call him a man after his own heart. David is shown in the Old Testament with all of his greatness and with all of his flaws. And this is another thing that I love about the Old Testament is that it does not try to sugarcoat things or whitewash things. I mean, people are shown at their best and at their worst. So I, in my chapter on David, uh, well, one of the things that I learned as I, as I studied this is that there's more, if you count the Psalms, which David wrote some of them, there's more information, more pages devoted to David in the Bible than anybody else, including Jesus, if you count the Psalms. So he's really a huge figure. And he's actually the first, I didn't do the book chronologically. I started with David because I just thought, you know, if you want to know what the Old Testament is like, he's really a key figure and, and shows how it works because I do a section on David and Goliath. Well, this shows David at, at his most heroic. You know, he's underdog. It's the, one of the greatest underdog stories in all of history. And everybody knows it. That You won't find anybody, if you say David and Goliath, who will say, who's that? I've never heard of them. You know, so it's, it's a well-known story. So you have him heroic. And but then when you see that he has this affair with Bathsheba and arranges for her husband to be killed and all the aftermath and, and tragedy that comes from that, you know, he, he really falls in your estimation. Although he repents for that, he's forgiven, he goes on, you know, and does other great things. So I think that we can relate to David, you know, because all of us have sinned, all of us are capable of heroic deeds, but all of us are capable of really bad deeds. And God loves us just as he loves David. God confronted David for his sin. He didn't just brush it aside, but he also didn't simply toss him aside and say, you're finished. David went on, he repented, he followed the Lord. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. I'm so glad you said that because I came to that same conclusion as well. David knew how to go to God 
and he knew when he was wrong and he constantly sought the Lord, even when he was rebellious. I also think, too, David still had to bear the consequences of his sin. For example, he wasn't allowed to build a temple because the Lord said he got blood on your hands. You can't do that. But, the, but he said, I may not be able to do that, but I can get the materials together. I can do this and do that. And he was able to do all that. And so it lets us know that just because we fall, we don't have to be canceled. Like today, it's just cancel out, cancel the person out, no redemption, no ark, nothing like that. You're just canceled. And quite frankly, that is the human tendency. I don't like what you said about me. I'm going to cancel you. That's it. But God does something even more spectacular. He gives us grace. He gives us the opportunity to fall back into relationship with him. There's a lot that goes on in the Old Testament that people truly don't appreciate. And I love the Old Testament, particularly I love the battles. I love hearing about the various cultures that were very prevalent back then. I love when you have the archaeologists who say, well, this used to be where this particular civilization lived or where this particular civilization lived, things of that nature. And you can see this handprint of the Old Testament in the real world today. That's what I also love about the Old Testament, too. So there's a lot of nuggets of gold that can come from the Old Testament. Now, we're getting close to the end of our podcast today, Joe, and I want to thank you so much for being with me and highlighting just a little bit of your story. So before we go, let me ask you this one last question. The writing of this book and your previous book on the most influential New Testament passages affected your own faith and reading of the Bible. As you can imagine, it made a huge difference in my faith because I was able to spend really about five years total researching both books. And I would dig into each passage looking at the commentaries, looking at the films, looking at the poetry, looking at all the things written about it. And one thing that I realized about the Old and New Testament is you don't get to the end of it. You don't get to the point where you say, okay, now I understand all that and I never need to read it again. It just keeps opening up in new ways. So my faith has really been strengthened by looking at this. And I just, I'm so grateful that I got a chance to do it. I can definitely feel you there. Particularly the Old Testament shows how God used to do things, and the New Testament shows how God does things now, and they're both completely relevant. I think at the end of the day, the Bible is relevant and will continue to stay relevant. One of the reasons why is because each of us in life will one day have God-sized problems that only He can answer. We're going to have God-sized questions that only He can respond to. Because God refuses to not let his creation know that he is there, that we see his signature in everything around us. And so I want to leave with that, Joseph, and I want people to have an opportunity to contact you online. You can contact me uh, through my website, josephbents.com, also by email, jbents at apu.edu. Joseph, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with me today. And I cannot wait to have you back and have you back real soon. Thank you, Parker. It's been great to talk to you. Appreciate it. And we were talking today to Joseph Bentz. He is the author of the book, Eight Old Testament Passages That Changed the World. And if you want to read this book and the companion book, 12 New Testament Passages That Changed the World, go ahead and get them together. They're both on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. I hope you definitely enjoy the conversation today because it lets you know that the Bible continues and will always continue 
to remain relevant. It doesn't matter how many people are reading the Bible because God has not run out of anyone yet. He is going to meet you where you are. If you have questions about the Bible, don't shy from them. Go ahead, ask questions, and don't stop asking questions until you get the answer. You may not like the answer, but don't stop asking the question. Use the ability of critical thinking. Use those problem-solving skills embedded in all of us to ask God questions about himself, about the Bible, and about faith in general. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of the Parker J. Cole Show. You have a wonderful, absolutely glorious blessed day, and God bless.